us, to challenge us, to shape us. We are open before you. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Amen. It sure is a unparalleled joy each time we have our elementary school children in our worship service. And thank you uh, for those of you who lead them in that ministry and others. I uh, want to thank uh, John Walker and Tommy Fountain for leading our Wednesday night services in our absence. And want to thank uh, Brian Alexander and Have and Will again for preaching Sunday. Let me invite your attention to Daniel chapter 7. And as we look at Daniel chapter 7, we are looking at a prophetic and apocalyptic text. Uh, this is perhaps the most intimidating kind of literature in the Bible for many people. Uh, after many years of looking at this kind of literature in the Bible, it has become to me some of the most encouraging. And I hope that that will become uh, evident and clear as, uh, as we look at Daniel 7 this morning and other apocalyptic texts as the weeks go on. It is important to know how to interpret uh, prophetic symbols in the Bible and not merely pass over them or dismiss them or ignore them. Uh, what are we to make of the symbols in Daniel 7 and other places in Daniel and in Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 25, in the book of Revelation? How are we to understand these things? Well, there are several ways to understand these things. One, you can simply look at the text and know it, and sometimes the text itself will explain what these things mean. The seven candlesticks in Revelation chapter 1 are the seven churches, according to verse 17 of chapter 1, and it's explained right there in the text. But there's a second thing. The culture of the time is such that the people who first read these symbols would immediately know what they are. Uh, we will find that uh, to be the case in verse number uh, 4. Uh, it was real clear. In a little Bible study, we'll clear that up. So uh, it's not as difficult as you might think to understand these things. Sometimes the images are very obvious. If you are aware that Satan was as cunning as a serpent and snake in Genesis 3, and then you read Revelation 12 where God cast a serpent out of heaven, it's rather obvious what's going on there. Um, if back 25 years ago you were reading a newspaper uh, when such things were read, at least the print edition, and you were to see an editorial cartoon of a deflated bear with a bald eagle standing victoriously on top of it, those of you who grew up during the Cold War era would immediately know uh, what that means. That means that the freedom and vision of American democracy has defeated the vision of global imperialistic communism. The bear, Soviet communism, the American bald eagle would represent the United States. So sometimes it's just very obvious. And then if you look at the details in the text, that will help, and that will help us uh, this morning. Now the question is, are any of these things in apocalyptic literature really relevant? Are they relevant at all? Are they as relevant as the Psalms? Are they as relevant as the Sermon on the Mount or Paul's uh, letters? Well, I would say to you, yes, indeed. And the first reason is, is that large portions of the Bible are given to prophetic literature. Prophetic information. In the book of Daniel, 45% 
of Daniel's material is prophetic. 45%. Uh, Then, if you were to take the first verse of Genesis and read all the way to the last verse of Revelation and count, you would find that more than 26% of the verses are given to prophecy. In other words, to avoid prophecy is to avoid one out of every four verses in the Bible. I think the Bible is the most relevant book uh, in the world. In fact, it is the most relevant print in the world. And I believe it's more relevant than this morning's newspaper and news sites online. So large portions of the Bible are given to prophetic information. And then, um, when we talk about prophecy, we're talking about the future. And who isn't interested in the future? Everyone wants to know about the future. In fact, the future is probably your greatest anxiety and your greatest hope. And God has said a word about it. This God has, and that's unique in sacred literature. Only the Bible engages in detailed predictive prophecy. None of the other books do. You don't find them engaging in the detail about the future that the Bible does. And then Jesus had an awful lot to say that was prophetic. Much of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are given to prophecy. And if you take Revelation as a fifth gospel, which I do, I think Jesus is the subject of Revelation as much as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then you have an awful lot of prophetic material from Christ. And then finally, let me ask you a question. Men, do you understand the women in your life? Ladies, do you understand the men in your life? Do you understand any more about them today than you did at the very beginning? Or are you, like me, more confused than you've ever been before in your life? Well, let me ask you this. Seeing as how you agree with me that we really don't understand anything about the opposite sex, did that keep you from marriage? Well, you may struggle with prophetic information and may not understand everything about apocalyptic literature, but like marriage, don't let that keep you from it. There is a marvelous blessing found in prophetic literature and prophetic text. And we're going to look at that this morning because of verse 28 of chapter 7. Daniel received this vision from God and it upset him. And he goes on to say in verse 28, this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me. My countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Daniel went through sorrows. Daniel went through the anxiety of having to tell the king no to eating his diet in Daniel chapter 1. He had to go through the anxiety of near execution because of the foolish rashness of a king in chapter 2. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to go through the temptation to compromise and bow before another god, an idol, or be thrown into the fiery furnace, and they were in chapter 3. Daniel had to go through the anxiety of a law written specifically against his religious practices and was thrown in the lion's den because of it in chapter 6. And here in chapter 7, Daniel is upset. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but ladies and gentlemen, the truth is is that life is full of sorrow and misery and heartache almost at every 
return. If you're still breathing, you can't get away from it. You are either in the midst of a struggle, or you're coming out of one, or you're headed towards one. One way or the other. Struggle and misery and sorrow and heartache define much of life, and there's no escaping it in this life. That is how it is. And it may be a struggle and sorrow over temptation, over death, over any of the other sorrows others face that are in the faith or outside the faith. We are not immune. And Daniel has faced them along with his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And with these sorrows, with this troubled heart, comes the temptation to compromise by following and entering competing kingdoms on the earth. And make no mistake about it, there are competing kingdoms. Whenever there is sorrow, whenever there's heartache, and whenever there's difficulty, we will be tempted to pursue another kingdom, another way of handling them. Some people will be tempted to spin their way through it and rack up enormous debt hoping to satisfy something in their hearts. Some will be tempted to drink their way through it, or drug their way through it, or sex their way through it. Some will be tempted to eat their way through it. Some will be tempted to begin to control everyone's life and become a control freak, or at least something close to it. Anything the heart can do to obtain peace, it will do it if we do not pursue God. Listen, when we stop pursuing God and His kingdom, even in a time of temptation, it's not that we don't pursue, it's not that we stop pursuing everything, it's that we will pursue anything. Just as long as we can have some peace. And I believe that explains most of the sorrow and the heartache most people on the earth face whenever they go through difficult times. That explains so much of the compromise among God's people. Anything for peace. Listen to me. When you are upset, you will not rest until that is satisfied. You will do anything for peace. And what Daniel did is that he turned to God and looked to Him with all of his heart. And through this vision here that is made up of four wild beasts. God directed Daniel to wait for him to bring a better kingdom. And that leads me to analyze the text first. There is an introduction in verses 1 through 3 where Daniel said that he had a dream and it contained several visions. So it's one dream with several visions. And he said in verse 3 that four great beasts came up out of the sea, which... Uh, oftentimes in the scripture symbolizes the chaotic world, each different from the other. Now here's the first beast in verse number four. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Now ancient people would immediately read that and saw both the combination of a lion with eagle's wings as symbols of Babylon. Both the eagle and the lion symbolized Babylon. And I watched till its wings were plucked off. Well, that's Nebuchadnezzar back in chapter 4. He was disabled. God disabled him in many ways in chapter 4. He was lifted from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man because God restored Nebuchadnezzar and a man's heart was given to him. He was like a beast and God turned him into a man. And so this is looking back actually to what took place with Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. And, and then there's another beast in verse 5. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, 
Well, most scholars believe this refers to the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Now, there's something interesting about the Medes and Persians. They came together, but the Persians were more elevated and stronger than the Medes. And so it says it was raised up on one side. It was exalted on one side. And so indeed they were. And had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Well, to get to the point, the kingdom of the Medes and Persians defeated um, Lydia and defeated Babylon and defeated Egypt. And so uh, three ribs or three kingdoms that are dismantled and devoured by the kings of the Medes and Persians. And they said, thus to it arise, devour much flesh. And that indicates the wars they went through with those three kingdoms. Now, there's a, there's a third beast in verse 6. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. So it's a stealthy leopard that is very quick because it's got wings. Most scholars believe this refers to Alexander the Great who before he was age 33 had conquered all the kingdoms of the known world. The key to his kingdom and his rule and his military prowess was speed. He expedited his exploits all over the world with rapid speed, breathtaking speed. And then he goes on to say, the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. When Alexander died, his kingdom was split up into four other kingdoms. And then we get to verse number 7 that is the most curious and the uh, most gripping beast of all. And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now if you look at a uh, herd of deer, and there's one of them with ten horns. Obviously, he's the one in charge. Horns indicate authority, or at least that's what he would probably like to think. But then, if you look at a flock of sheep, the ram with the horns is the one in charge. He dominates the flock. Horns indicate authority. You could read horn here in this text, at least, as authority. Now, this will appear later in Revelation 12.3 and Revelation 13.1. For the Antichrist in his kingdom. There is coming a day when the second person of the unholy trinity, the Antichrist, will come upon the earth and he will deceive the world, unify the governments, unify the religions, unify the economies into one world order, something that's attempting to take place now, working itself out in many ways in our own world now, preparing for that day, whenever he will seek to destroy the saints of God and the name of Christ. Uh, he will not have, by the way, a pitchfork and a red suit and horns and a pointed tail when he appears. He's much too intelligent for that. He will be the most popular and smooth-speaking politician in the history of the world. And Daniel sees him here. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And so there's a war that takes place between these authorities and nations, and this little horn that appears little to begin with ends up dominating all ten, even to the extent of destroying three of them. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. And so there's something very humane 
about this beast, yet still internally he is a beast. And he speaks pompous words, and later in verses 15 to 28, it's very clear he speaks blasphemous words. This is the history of the nations of the earth. Daniel Davis has written a commentary on Daniel, and he indicates just why it is that these nations of the earth are referred to as beasts and not, say, flowers or gardens or something more pleasant. Beasts, lions, strange beasts, lions with eagle's wings and leopards with eagle's wings and bears that have dripping from their mouth the blood of three ribs. And that's the least of the worries here in the text. There's this fourth beast that is dreadful and terrible that is yet to come that was probably prefigured by the Roman Empire and all of its brutality and its abuse of humans. There's a reason why we call, or Daniel calls, or God through Daniel calls these nations beasts. He goes on through the history of the earth for the last 200 years, and here's what he says, and this is lengthy, but please pay careful attention. The last century provides too many samples. Turkish government troops had already killed up to 100,000 Armenians in 1895 and 96. And then in 1915, the Turks accused the Armenians of assisting Russian invaders. And so on April 24th was set as Armenian Liquidation Day. As many as 600,000 died that day. Many under great cruelty, like having their heads placed in vices and squeezed until they collapsed. And then when the Koreans protested Japanese tyranny in 1919, men and boys had their fingers passed over red-hot wires and toenails were ripped from flesh with pinchers. Some were flogged and repeatedly until taken to the hospital. Big slabs of gangrenous skin were cut, out, cut off. And then there was Black Friday during World War II when Japanese troops went through Alexandra Hospital in Singapore, bayoneting all patients, doctors, and nurses, and then tied hundreds of Chinese hand-to-hand and massacred them on the beaches. Sometimes the brutality can be laid at the feet of a single dictator, Davis says. In 1932, Joseph Stalin demanded grain deliveries from the Ukrainian peasantry, quotas that were larger than the total crop. The demand was ruthlessly enforced and at least 5 million, more likely 7 million, simply starved to death. And in the 1970s, Idi Amin carried out his own style of carnage in Uganda, sledgehammering prisoners, so that execution cells were littered with human eyes and teeth. Bodies floating down rivers, civilians who happened to belong to the wrong tribe, screaming in agony as their sex organs were ripped away. These examples are not exceptions. Such episodes pervade history, Davis says. Nor does one have to dig deeply to come up with cruelties perpetrated by more refined Western democracies. Daniel's vision is telling us that history is beastly. It is scary. He wants us to hold a clear realism about life in this world. And then, I I don't mean to be humorous, and I really don't, but his next paragraph discusses marriage. 
and some of the heartache and sorrow that spouses bring to one another and parents to children, children to parents. We, we finished this catalog of the nations with Idi Amin in the 1970s. Ladies and gentlemen, it's only gotten worse. If you consider the wholesale slaughter of unborn children in America since Roe v. Wade, you'd have to place that into this category as well. If you considered what is taking place in the Middle East, after hundreds of millions of dollars and multiplied man-hours with the greatest minds in the world seeking to bring peace in the Middle East, you'd have to place that in this same category. The history of the nations is beastly. Ladies and gentlemen, some people criticize the book of Daniel and say it's not true. I've got to say there's very little else other than Daniel that is true. That is a true portrayal of the, war, of the world. And then we get to verse number 8 with a little horn. As boastful as he is. But then there is an abrupt shift to the focus of the text. And it's abrupt. And it should be. The way that this is put together in the text is put together in such a way to abruptly break from consideration of all these beasts to lift our vision higher and upward where it should be. Uh, the, the implication is here, do not obsess so much over the beast where just about a verse is given to each one. But instead, look at the main material here because the picture begins to grow in light and in glory. Beginning in verse number 9, there is here the Ancient of Days. Read with me verse 9 and 10. I watched till thrones were put into place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. The Ancient of Days. Look at his name. He's ancient. He's ancient with days. He is, in other words, eternal. He has seen it all before. And he's not intimidated. Look next at his posture. The Ancient of Days is seated in the midst of this zoo of the nations. He is seated and at rest entirely secure and not vulnerable to a coup and overthrow of his kingdom. He's seen it all before. He is seated. And, and then look at his appearance. His garment was as white, white as snow. His hair, the hair of his head was like pure wool. His garment which covers his chest means his heart was pure. And his head, his thinking is entirely pure and, and as white as snow. He's about to judge and he will do so without any impure motive whatsoever. And dear God, give us leaders like that. That's his appearance. And, and then... Look further at, um, at his throne. His throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels, apparently his throne is much like a chariot. Its wheels, a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth 
from before him. He burns and incinerates all lies and all fakery, all false evidence that is proposed before his court. All, listen, all of the proceedings before the throne of God are entirely pure. And then he goes on to his attendants. Ten thousand, a thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And then his work. The court was seated and the books were open. Well, this little horn is dismissed in verses 11 and 12, just brushed aside. And Daniel keeps saying in verse number 12 about someone else and the focus here. The Son of Man. Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions. And behold, one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. The clouds remind us of the Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God, how they represented the presence of God as Israel traveled through the wilderness with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, the presence of God. And then the presence of God appeared in a cloud when Solomon dedicated the temple. With this one comes the presence of God. This is the deity of the Son of Man. But He's not only deity indicated by the clouds, He's also humanity indicated by the Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite term for Himself. He uses it more than any other term in the Scripture, going back to Daniel chapter 7. Jesus, in many ways, and I want to be careful here, Jesus obsessed over Daniel chapter 7. If you want to know the mind of Jesus, know Daniel 7. He is both humanity and He is deity, and by calling Himself the Son of Man, He is claiming to be the God-man that is first portrayed here in Daniel chapter 7. That's who He is. And it goes on to say, He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before him, nearer than any other figure has ever come to the Ancient of Days. John would later say that Jesus rests in the bosom of the Father, leans his head upon the chest of his Father. There is a nearness between the Father and Son that we dare not underestimate. Jesus is nearer and dearer and closer to the Father than any other breathing person to be found anywhere. The Father loves His Son. And for that reason, because Jesus alone occupies that place, Jesus alone is trustworthy. Despite all the competing kingdoms of the earth, Jesus alone is trustworthy. Muhammad cannot make this claim. Joseph Smith cannot make this claim. None of the Buddhas and none of the 300 million deities of Hinduism can make this claim. Materialism cannot make this claim. Hedonism, with its manifestations in drugs and alcohol and sex and eating, cannot make this claim. No other competing king or kingdom can make the claim that he can come as near to the Ancient of Days as Jesus can. In fact, we'll go so far as to say what Jesus did for any of them to reach the Ancient of Days, God the Father, they've got to come through the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And then, verse 14, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. There's not enough words to, available in the human language to stack on one another to describe what he receives. 
He was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. There is a total, in, in a benevolent sense, a totalitarian and universalistic vision to his kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And this is the kingdom to which he calls you to turn whenever you go through sorrow and misery and heartache. Now, I'm not going to take an awful lot of time on the second section of this analysis in verse 15 to 28 because we really have already done that. But then we have the interpretation, and there are two inquiries and two interpretations. The first one from verses 15 to 18 are brief with, with adequate detail, but then more is said, especially about the fourth beast in verses 19 to 28. Daniel inquires about, and there's an indication here that there will be a global persecution launched by the Antichrist during the tribulation against the saints. That leads me to an application here. Wait on God's kingdom because it is as superior to other kingdoms as God is to other kings. In other words, the kingdom of God has within it the very character of God. And if God himself is superior to the kingdoms of the earth, then to the kings of the earth, then God's kingdom is superior to all the kingdoms of the earth. In other words, in our sorrows, we can afford to clutch to him and not the competitors. We must develop the discipline and sorrow of turning to him because God's kingdom is superior. And he offers several things that are superior. The first one is this, a superior book. A superior book. Critics criticize the book of Daniel. They say it's a forgery. It was not written in the 6th century. It was written in the 2nd century. And Daniel is not prophecy, the critics say. It is actually history that is portrayed as prophecy. Someone's trying to trick and delude and fake out the people of God. They, they say it specifically it was written during the Maccabean period in 165 uh, B.C. during the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes over Israel. There are several reasons to dismiss that notion. Number one, there's no evidence that Daniel was written in the second century. The reason the critics say that is that Daniel is so precise and detailed and accurate in his prophecy that it requires belief in the supernatural inspiration of the Scripture, which is what the critics dismiss before they ever study the text. And so the deck is stacked against the prophets before they ever study. There's simply no evidence, however, that the critics' theory is right. Second, the Septuagint was translated in 250 B.C., not 165, but 250, and there was a copy of Daniel in that. And so that's um, about 100 years beforehand. Third, the high priest Judea met Alexander outside of Jerusalem sometime in 330 B.C., and opened up the book of Daniel to show in chapter 7 and verse number 6 how the Scripture prophesied his kingdom and rule. Josephus tells this story and says that Alexander was upset with the Jews of Jerusalem. And to placate Alexander as he marched into Jerusalem to destroy it, the high priest met him and showed him where he was actually mentioned in the Scripture and did so in 330 B.C. A fourth reason, Ezekiel exalts Daniel in Ezekiel 14 and 28. 
Well, Ezekiel was of the 6th century, and Daniel had achieved and arrived at that great prestigious high uh, reputation enough to find himself in another book of the Old Testament. Uh, another reason, a fifth reason, the Aramaic of the book of Daniel, in chapter 2 through 12 is written in Aramaic. The Aramaic of Daniel is not the Aramaic of the second century uh, among the uh, Maccabeans. It happens to be the Aramaic of the sixth century. There are sixth century Aramaic words found in the text. Then finally, in Matthew 24, verse 15, Jesus referred to Daniel as a prophet, not a historian. He called Daniel, Daniel the prophet. Now recently, there has been a pastor in Georgia that has said that the Bible is not a good foundation for our faith or is not the foundation of our faith. The resurrection is. Well, he's half true. Jesus Christ is the foundation of our faith and appealing to his resurrection to an unbelieving or skeptical or struggling world is an excellent strategy. But dismissing the Bible as an element of the foundation of the Christian faith denies Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Ladies and gentlemen, we have in the Word of God a firm, strong, unassailable piece of the foundation of the Christian faith. You can stand on the Word of God. And whenever God calls you in a time of sorrow, not to panic and flee to other kingdoms, not to flee to other sources of comfort, but to come to Him. He is doing so through a book that is the most reliable word available to human beings. You will never go wrong by looking to God in His Word. When you go through sorrow, when tears cascade down your face, when your knees are trembling, and, and, and your heart is aching and breaking. Do not decrease your intake of the Word. Expand your increase of the Word, and you will meet God in it every time. And that is why we preach the Bible. That's why we encourage a daily time on the part of all people in the Word of God. That's why we memorize Scripture. That's why we have special guest speakers like October 23rd with John Reed to declare the Word of God because God manifests Himself on the pages of the Word of God. We've got a superior book, a more reliable Word. But then there's a superior effect. Daniel was affected Moved, distressed, alarmed, and put in awe over all of this. Charles Spurgeon says that he was too. He said when he considered biblical prophecy, he could hear the chariot wheels and it moved him to set his house in order. He could feel the shadow of the great cloud and it would cool his worldliness. He could hear the tuning of the trumpets and it would startle him into action. One day he will put an end to the merchants of sorrow. And when you have sorrow and you wait on God, you wait for the best. And this is an adequate message for the whole world. Behind every door of every home in our region is a broken heart. Behind every one of them is some kind of sorrow that is too large to bear. We cannot do anything we set our mind to, and I wish we would stop telling our children that. 
That is simply not the case. We are not adequate to deal with our own sin. We are not adequate to deal with our own death. And the philosophies and the optimism of the world is not adequate, ladies and gentlemen, for the heartbreaking sorrows of life. But in Jesus Christ, in His Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, there is more than enough grace to take care of everything that causes the human heart to ache. That's the effect. And that's why we're going to be zealous about interceding and investing in friends and inviting them to be with us October 23rd with John Reed. Then there's a superior promise. Look at verse 18, what he says here. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. Oh, much the same is said in verse 22. The Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. And then in verse 27, Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom's an everlasting kingdom, so theirs is too. And all dominions shall serve and obey Him. God entices you when there's heartache and sorrow to turn to Him and repudiate the competing kingdoms of the world by promising you a superior kingdom. And we read verse 27 right. Oh, we did. It's very similar to Romans 8, 17. And that is, we are co-heirs, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. That is, the kingdom, and this is almost too good to believe. And if it weren't for Scripture, I couldn't believe it. But we are, we are invited to embrace a kingdom that is of the stature and the dignity and the eternity of the very kingdom that Jesus Christ will inherit Himself. It's not a separate kingdom that's an appendage to His kingdom. It's not something that is divided from His kingdom. We are called to inherit the very kingdom of Jesus Christ. Christ. Listen, you can compromise and capitulate and conform now and receive a little temporary kingdom which you will one day lose, or you can wait in faithfulness and inherit the kingdom that will never end where Jesus will reign and rule. And if you will do a simple and quick cost-benefit analysis, it's really clear which one we should choose. Are you, would you agree with me? So to walk faithfully with God, it takes a commitment to delay gratification. And for a greater gratification. In other words, it takes some maturity. So when in sorrow you wait on God, you wait to inherit the kingdom Jesus will inherit. And then, this kingdom offers a superior king. Look at his father in verse 9. Have words like this ever been said of any other father? In verse 10. Who in the world has ever occupied a throne like that? Who has ever had for centuries and millenniums and eternities garments that are able to stay white as snow and pure like wool? He exists and He thrives in fire. He's got countless saints and angels attending to His will. And He is the judge. And then look at His Son in verse 13 and 14. There is no one like Him. When your heart is tempted to compromise, capitulate, and conform to a competing kingdom, 
look to Jesus. Now, this is emphatic here, and it would be really easy to get doxological at this point and take off and brag on Jesus. I will begin a series of messages in December where we will, where we will do that. But I want to give you a real practical point at this time on how to handle your sorrows. In verse 9, look what Daniel said in his interaction with this apocalyptic literature and these visions and, and this prophetic material. He said in verse 9, I watched. I watched. The New American Standard, I looked, or I kept looking. Verse number 11, I watched. Really, in the Hebrew, he continued to watch. He continued to look. Verse 13, I was watching. I was looking. I continued to look. And then verse 21, I was watching. Daniel put a gaze on the beasts of the earth. Daniel gave merely a glance at the beasts of the earth, but he set his gaze on God. When you're enduring sorrow, when you're enduring temptation, when your heart is aching, you're going to have to develop the mental discipline of glancing only at your problems and gazing at God. Stayed upon Jehovah. Hearts are surely blessed. Finding as He promised, perfect peace and rest. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in your darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior. And life abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of this earth. Oh, they'll grow strangely dim. In the light of His glory and grace. Isaiah 26, 3. He is at perfect peace because He whose mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Do not think on the things of the earth, but think on things above. Isaiah 45, 22. Look to me all the ends of the earth and be ye saved. This is why we urge the people of God to put their nose in the Bible on a daily basis and intensify that on Sundays and not take it out under any circumstance. When in sorrow you wait on God and repudiate the temptations and the kingdoms of the world, you wait for the King of kings and Lord of lords, and there's no one who satisfies the heart like Jesus. So wait on the King and His kingdom. But the Bible does not teach us to wait on everything. It doesn't. It teaches us to do some things now and expect some things now. We should wait on Him, and we must, and we really don't have a choice, to wait on His kingdom. But there's no need to wait for Him to bring grace and to rescue us from the guilt of our sins. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, Now is the acceptable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Now is the best time to receive the grace of God. To have God cancel the penalty against your sins today because of Jesus and what He purchased for you at the cross and in the resurrection. Now is the time to get humble. Now is the time to trust Him. Now is the time to ask Him. Dio Moody told of a minister who had a dream. 
And in his dream, he saw a group of demons who were conversing, much like C.S. Lewis would later write about some 75 years later. And he said that the demons were talking about how to keep people from the grace of God. And one demon suggested in this demonic council, what we need to do is convince them the Bible's not true. And one replied, no, there's just there's too much evidence and there's, uh, there are too many... Um, it's just very difficult to do that with people. Another said, well, let's, um, instead of that, let's tell them God does not exist. And another replied, no, it's born in their hearts to believe that. Eternity is set in their hearts, and very, 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 very few people ever buy into that. The third demon said, hey, let's go ahead and tell them that the Bible's true, and let's tell them God exists, and the cross and resurrection are all legitimate. And that salvation is free and that God wants to save. But let's tell them there's no hurry. They don't need to do it now. And they all agreed that was the best approach to take. E. Stanley Jones said, If you don't make up your mind, your unmade mind will unmake you. Now is the acceptable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Do now and today what God wants you to do. Stand with me, please, and let's pray about it. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the clarity of your word. And as we've looked into a prophetic and apocalyptic section of Scripture, God, you've been very good to us. And thank you for exalting Jesus in our worship today. We praise you that you are superior, and I want to pray that friends today would repudiate and run from anything inferior. I pray that they would place trust in your word, that they would feel the effect and experience the effect of your promises. And I pray that they would embrace the superior king today because you're worthy. Would you please grant the power and movement of your Holy Spirit to make that happen today? Now friends, let me explain to you what we're going to do. I want to ask you just to keep praying and thinking about what God would have you to do in this time. But we're going to sing a song, and just as soon as we sing, staff will be here in the front to help you with any spiritual decision that you need to make. Now is the time. You've been thinking for a while, you've been contemplating for a while, some months, some years. Now is the time. Make up your mind, Jesus is worthy. He doesn't need to do anything else. You Throw your soul at Him today. And we want to help you with that. So we're going to sing a song. We're going to invite you to come. You come quickly. Come immediately. And we'll be glad to help you. You're surrounded by people who've done this themselves, who've sought help. So if you need to open up your heart and life to Christ and get right with God today, you can. You can leave here free and forgiven, no longer under the burden of your guilt before God. And Jesus purchased that at the cross and resurrection. You can become part of Beach Haven now if you'll come. You can turn your burdens over to God. Even at this altar, you can bring someone to pray for you now. Just do God's will now. He's worthy to be obeyed. I'm going to finish my prayer. Tim will start this song, and then we will turn to him. Lord, I pray that you would gather for you all the surrender that is needed and necessary here today. And do a work to where we are all unified in surrender to the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name, amen. Come now.